The Light of Hope in Their Eyes Stories from the Blitz A radio play by Bart Meehan I'm always chasing rainbows Watching Just like all my dreams Ending in the sky The whole of the warring nations are engaged, not only soldiers, but the entire population, men, women and children. The fronts are everywhere. The trenches are dug in the towns and streets. Every village is fortified. Every road is barred. The front line runs through the factories. The workmen are soldiers with different weapons, but the same courage. These are great and distinctive changes from what many of us saw in the struggle of a quarter of a century ago. There seems to be every reason to believe that this new kind of war is well suited to the genius and the resources of the British nation and the British Empire, and that, once we get properly equipped and properly started, a war of this kind will be more favourable to us than the sombre mass slaughters of the Somme and Passchendaele. Winston Churchill, 20th of August, 1940 I still remember that day so clearly, it was a Sunday morning, it was humid, so everyone had their windows open, and you could hear Mr Chamberlain and all the radios. I am speaking to you from the cabinet room at 10 Downing Street. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note, stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock, that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. My sister Karen was very excited by it all and she said that we would easily beat the Germans. That's what they said last time, Mother told her. We heard people shouting in the street. Everyone was out of their houses and talking about the war. One of the little Williams boys ran up to me and asked, Ruth, do you think we'll see any Germans here? He looked as though he expected them to come round the corner any minute. Then our neighbour, Mr Morgan, appeared on his doorstep with that silly little dog of his yapping at his feet. He raised his arms and motioned everyone to be quiet. Once more into the breach, dear friends, once more, or close the wall up with our English dead. In peace there's nothing so becomes a man as modest stillness and humility. But when the blast of war blows in our ears, then imitate the action of the tiger, stiffen the sinews, 
conjure up the blood, disguise fair nature with hard-favoured rage, then lend the eye a terrible aspect. People had stopped talking, and it was quiet now except for the barking. I could see Mr. Morgan was enjoying the attention. Mother told us that he'd been an actor once and travelled all over the country. And there was no doubt he loved having an audience. Even the simplest conversation was a chance for him to perform. When he met you, it was never just hello, but good greetings, my lady. And I remember that good night was quite a production. Still, he was a harmless old man, and all of us felt sorry for him living alone in that big house. From morn till even fought, and sheathed their swords for lack of argument. Dishonour not your mothers. Now attest that those whom you called fathers did beget you. Be copiner to men of grosser blood, and teach them how to war. And you, good yeoman, whose limbs were made in England, show us here the metal of your pasture. Let us swear that you are worth your breeding, which I doubt not. For there is none of you so mean and base that hath not noble luster in his eyes. I see you stand like greyhounds in the slips, straining upon the start. The game's afoot. Follow your spirit, and upon this charge cry, God for Harry, England, and St. George. We cheered and cheered, and that wretched dog barked. But as ready as we were to fight, for six months... Nothing really happened. There was plenty of talk and the occasional air raid warning, which always turned out to be a false alarm. We blacked out the windows and turned off the street lights and even carried our identity cards. But Mr. Hitler was nowhere to be seen, and we started treating it all as a bit of a joke. The Boer War, we called it. When they did start dropping bombs, it was on airfields and the like, in the country so there was still no excitement in London. But then one day in August, the warning sounded, and for the first time we heard a low hum that was like a swarm of bees getting nearer. Mother rushed out to pull her washing off the line, because she didn't want it shot through. Karen and I ran upstairs and took our curlers out, in case a bomb hit our house and we were killed. I suppose it only lasted a short time, but it seemed like hours. When it was over, I went to look out the window to see if there was any damage in the street. But there was nothing, and I remember being very disappointed. On the farm, every Friday, on the farm is rabbit pie day so every friday that ever comes along i get up early and sing this little song i had only been at oxford a few months when the war started and i had to decide whether i would go back to australia to fight or stay in britain there were several other australians and new zealanders in colleges at the time and we all agreed that it was better to stay the war may well be over by the time we got home, and right then, 
Defending Britain seemed to be the way to defeat Hitler. I joined the RAF as a pilot, and like all the lads who did, I wanted to fly fighters and be part of the battle for Britain. But there was more to it than that. When I was a boy, my father paid for me to have a joyride in an old crop duster at a country fair. My mother said it was foolishness to spend money on such a frivolous thing, but father would not be dissuaded. He was always looking for opportunities that would build my character. I don't know how high we went, but it was high enough that I could feel the clouds on my face. I looked around and there was sky everywhere. I was only eight, but I knew that this was what I wanted to do. A childish dream, of course. My father was adamant that my future lay in taking over the firm, and that meant I was destined for a career in commerce. But now, with the world at war, and all of us being asked to do our duty, there could be no objections. I completed my initial training, six weeks of navigation, strategy and Morse code punctuated by tortuous sessions of physical exercise and drill, and I was posted to flight school. There, for all my romantic dreams of flying, I found it did not come naturally to me. I struggled with the classes on the ground and lacked confidence in the air. Still, I understood my weaknesses better than some and worked hard to overcome them, which seemed to impress my instructors. One told me I was average, and when he saw my disappointment, he hastened to add that this was a good thing. Average pilots don't take risks and they live longer, he said. After 13 hours of training, I soloed, and when the course was completed, I'd managed to obtain a high enough mark to be posted to fighters. We were all very excited after graduation, and so a group of us went to London to celebrate. We had dinner at the Ritz and then took in a show at the Palladium. Vera Lynn was on the bill, as well as Florence Desmond, who did a marvellous impersonation of Marlene Dietrich. And there was Max Miller, who told scandalous jokes that were so funny, even the ladies in the audience laughed. We were all having a thoroughly enjoyable evening when the sirens sounded. Of course, this was a time when the sirens were more often than not false alarms. So, while some of the audience left to go to shelters, most of us stayed and the show went on. When it was over and the all-clear hadn't sounded... The whole cast came out on stage and we had a sing-along. Then the MC asked for volunteers from the audience to come up and show off their talents. My mates, who had seen me reciting poetry in the mess more than once, ignored my protests and pushed me up to the stage. There was nothing I could do to escape the situation, so I took a deep breath and launched into the first poem that came to mind. One my father had taught me. When you wear a cloudy collar and a shirt that isn't white, and you cannot sleep for thinking how you'll reach tomorrow night, you may be a man of sorrows and on speaking terms with care, and as yet be unacquainted with the demon of despair. For I rather think that nothing heaps the trouble on your mind like the knowledge that your trousers badly need a patch behind. To my surprise, the audience cheered, and so I carried on. I have noticed when misfortune strikes the hero of the play that his clothes are worn and tattered in a most unlikely way. And the gods applaud and cheer him while he whines and loafs around, and they never seem to notice that his pants are mostly sound. But, of course, he cannot help it, for our mirth would mock his care if the ceiling of his trousers showed the patches of repair. I heard the MC yelling at me from the wings. Take a bow, son. You're a hit. 
is riking, I'll call you. At the stroke of twelve, don't run away. Tom had just got around in when the air raid siren sounded. We all looked at each other and Fred asked if we should go to the sandwich shelter. It's what they called the shelters that the government had put up. If a bomb went off too close to them, the explosion would suck the walls out and the roof would collapse, sandwiching the people inside. Tom said he'd just bought a pint and he wasn't going anywhere. We all agreed and the landlord said that if we were staying, so was he. I expect he was more concerned that we pinch a pint while he was gone than he was about looking after his customers. The rest of the pub emptied out quick enough and I didn't blame them. They were mostly young and they hadn't been through the last war, but the three of us had sat in muddy trenches for four years while the Germans tried to blow everything the kingdom come, so this was nothing new. Tom slid the drinks across the table and started talking about the strange things you see. The other night, I passed a house that had taken a direct hit. There was nothing left except the doorstep. And there was the missus with her broom, sweeping it clean. We all agreed it was queer. Then we sat quietly slipping our pints and waiting for the first bombs to drop. Tom and I both lost legs within a week of each other, a few months before it was all over. His was the right. It was blown clean off below the knee. I lost the left to infection after I was shot. This gave us a pension, though that was a sore point for Tom. How large a pension was depended on how much of your leg was missing. He had half his leg left, so he only got 40%. Every Christmas since, Fred had given us a pair of shoes to share. It's a great joke, but those that weren't there couldn't understand it. When we went to the last war, it was with all the certainty of young men who knew they'd win every battle and be owned by the spring. We were luckier than most. Our captain, Mr Sullivan, was an half-decent chap. He'd been a teacher before the war, and while he was intent on ensuring we did our duty, he wanted to make sure it was done with as few casualties as possible. <sighs> our poor Mr Sullivan died of heart attack a few months before it was all over. His batman found him one morning and told me later he looked peaceful enough with a book lying open on his chest. For some reason it struck us all as being strange though for him to die like that with hell all around. I asked Tom if he remembered the poem that Captain Sullivan used to recite before every push. Of all the money here I had I spent it in good company and all the harm I've ever done Alas, it was to none but me. And all I've done for want of wit, to memory now I can't recall. So fill to me the parting glass and drink my health before I fall. We heard the first bombs falling somewhere on the other side of the city. And Fred waved his empty glass at the landlord. visions of a love 
she may be in dreams I'll always see my London as the daylight dies. People wonder now how we could stand being in London then, when you could die at any moment. But the truth is that we didn't think about it that way. We just got on with our lives. A couple of nights a week, Karen and I would go to the cinema. It was usually full, even if the film was not very good, because it was underground, and so it was safe if there was an air raid. On the weekend, we would go out dancing, or sometimes we would go to the Palladium and see Henry Hall and his band with singers like Vera Lynn and Anne Shelton. The city was so interesting then. There were young men from all over the world, Canada, America and Australia. I particularly liked the Australian boys. They were very funny and told interesting stories about living in the bush and chasing kangaroos. But they did spend a lot of time drinking, so if you wanted to dance, you had to find an American. My memory is that people were very friendly, even to strangers. There was a real sense of comradeship. We were all in it together. One time, on our way home from the city, Karen and I were caught on the street during an air raid. We had no idea what we would do, but then a butcher called to us from his shop to come inside. He let us share his cold room until the all-clear sounded, and then he gave us some sausages for our supper. All the way home we were laughing hysterically, we told Mum that we'd been frozen with fear during the raid. We were young. We didn't understand the war. It was more exciting than terrifying. But then one night, that all changed. That was the night that they dropped bombs all over London. They dropped so many, you thought the ground was going to open up and swallow the city. In the beginning, the three of us did what we always did. We hid under our table. At first, we weren't frightened, but then the bombs didn't stop, and we could feel them getting closer. We tried singing to take our minds off it all, but every time we heard an explosion, we'd scream and have to start over. Then, one hit our street, and I felt the house rock, and several windows blew in. The cabinet fell over and all the china shattered across the floor. Karen and I started crying. I remember Mother stroking our hair. Shush now. We won't be dying like this, she told us. When the bombing finally stopped, the explosions were replaced by the sound of sirens. It was like the whole city was screaming. We stayed under our table for a long time, but finally... I had enough, and ignoring my mother's protests, I went outside. The street was a shambles. There were people everywhere, some looking up to see if they still had a roof, others checking to see if their neighbours were still alive. I saw that the bomb had landed at the far end of the street, and that they had blown off the front of Mr Morgan's house. There looked to be so much damage, I was sure he'd be dead. But as I got closer, I saw him sitting on the step. I was so relieved that I started laughing and shouting to him, Mr. Morgan, you're alive! He didn't look at me. When I reached him, 
I saw he was cradling the little dog in his arms, and that it wasn't moving. Silly bugger was in the wrong place when the ceiling came down. Broke his back. But he didn't go straight away, so I held his head and let him lick my fingers. I kept wishing that I'd had a sweet to give him. I think I said something about him not feeling any pain, and Mr. Morgan nodded. He was a nuisance, I know that, with all his barking and the way he'd jump up and tear the young girl's stockings. God knows he ate like a dog five times his size. Half my pension was in his belly. Still, he was with me a long time, and he was there every morning when I woke up. It's over now. He won't be there tomorrow. I began to cry. I knew it was silly, crying for a little dog, when hundreds had died all over London that night. But I didn't know then. That certain night, the night we met, there was magic abroad in the Imagine it is the same for all young people. Death is not a real thing. I certainly didn't think about it as I was completing my training and waiting to make a contribution to the war effort. But then I saw it up close for the first time. A Whitley bomber was forced to land at our airfield. It had been on a training mission when an engine caught fire, and by the time they touched down, the whole plane was ablaze. The fire tender rushed to the scene but the fire was too intense for them to put it out. I was standing with the CO and a few others, watching. Most of the crew made it out, but the rear gunner was trapped in his turret. There was no way for him to escape, and as the flames engulfed him, we heard him screaming. He was begging us not to let him die. One of the lads beside me asked whether there was anything we could do. There's one thing, the CO said, and he stepped forward, took out his pistol and pulled the trigger. Later I saw some of the poor boy's crew sitting outside the mess, and I stopped to offer them my condolences. One of them held out his hand. He was holding a scorched squadron patch. All that's left of him now, he said. Not much to send home. My war was a short one. A few weeks after I qualified on the Spitfire... We got the word that there were bandits coming in at around 15,000 feet. There were only ten of us, and there was no doubt we would be outnumbered, but we didn't think twice about that. We met them over the channel, and as soon as they saw us, they opened fire. I could see the tracers coming, and at first they streaked past me. For a moment, I thought that my luck was in, but then the aircraft jerked violently and exploded in flame. There was no chance of landing it, and at that height, there was not much time before I cooked. So I reached up and slid the hood back. Then I rolled the aircraft on its back and kicked the control column so the nose was pointing up. That was enough and I popped out of the cockpit like a cork out of a bottle. I was tumbling through the dark and for a moment I panicked, scared that I wouldn't be able to find the ripcord or that the parachute wouldn't open. But everything worked as it was meant to and I floated down to the channel while the fighting carried on above me. 
As I hit the water, the chute folded and the cords started to wrap around me like tentacles. I knew that I had to get out or I'd be dragged under. I turned the release disc for the harness, and as I did, I felt a crippling pain shoot up my arm. This was the first time that I knew my hands were badly burned. I took stock for a moment and realised that my face was burned as well, and one of my eyes was swollen shut. I was in a bad shape, but I had no time to worry about it. I kicked away from the chute and then lifted the bottom of my gas mask so I could blow into the rubber tube that inflated my life jacket. I suspect that if it had not been for the water slapping me, I would have fainted from the pain. I could see shadows of a coastline in the distance and knew that was England. So I started to swim towards it, but after a few minutes I heard a boat. As it got closer, I saw a man standing on the deck. He was pointing a rifle at me. Keep your hands where I can see them, Herr Hitler. Fool thought I was a German and I was in no mood to play games. I screamed at him, For God's sake, I'm a bloody Australian! He seemed to consider this for a moment. Then he lowered the gun. That's a long way to swim, son. You better get on board. He took me back to port and I was transferred to a hospital where they did their best to treat my wounds. But after a few days I knew my time as a pilot was over. My hands had melted. For months after I could barely hold a glass and I was blind in one eye. I knew that my injuries had probably saved my life, but still, I missed flying and I often thought of that first time years ago when the earth had disappeared below me and there was sky everywhere. I can see A bomb fell a few streets over and the explosion rattled the pub, knocking a bottle off the bar. Smashed on the floor and Tom looked at it, disappointed. Pity, that was a good single malt. We all laughed, even the landlord, though I could tell he thought we were a little odd. But then he hadn't seen what we'd seen. Truth was that long ago we'd learned that you just had to get on with it. What else were you going to do? When I got back, I took a job in my uncle's butcher shop. And after a few years, I had enough to buy off him when he retired. My wife and I had two daughters, and for a long time I was disappointed that one of them wasn't a boy, though I never let on. But when the war started, I wasn't disappointed any more. Tom wasn't so lucky. He had two sons old enough to serve. One went up north to train with the army. The other was air crew on a bomber. In those early days, we didn't drop bombs on Germany, just leaflets telling them to get rid of Hitler. There were millions dropped, and the joke was that we'd supplied Germany with enough toilet paper to last the war. Tom's lad was coming back from one of those runs when something happened to the engine and it caught fire. plane crashed trying to land and his boy died. Tom came in that night and brought a round for everyone so they'd remember him, and he sat by himself till closing. He never talked about it again. The bombing stopped after a couple of hours and we heard the sirens. It was safe to walk the streets, but 
we decided to get one more round in before we did. On my way home, I stopped for a moment and looked up at the red glow in the sky. The city was burning and all over people were dead or dying. I found myself thinking about a cold night during the last war when I was standing guard and Captain Sullivan came up to my position. We stood together watching the sun rise over no man's land and the bodies that had been left because no one could be spared to bury him. Then he said something like he was talking to himself. A glooming peace this morning with it brings. The sun, for sorrow, will not show his head. Go hence to have more talk of these sad things. I saw people coming out of the shelters, laughing, and wardens yelling at children to stop chasing the fire trucks. There was a family searching for memories in the rubble of their bombed-out house, and a young girl singing on her doorstep, who winked as I passed. That was The Light of Hope in Their Eyes by Bart Meehan. With Geoffrey Borney, David Clapham, Krista de Yaga and Tony Turner. It was directed by Tony Turner. The light of hope in their eyes And though I'm far away I still can hear them say for when the dawn comes on, there'll be bluebirds over the white cliffs of Dover. Tomorrow, just you wait and see. The shepherd will tend his sheep, the valley will bloom again, and Jimmy will go to sleep.